welcome to the Tiny Plastic People podcast. It is the podcast about tiny plastic people. We paint them, we place them into intricate dioramas and then take macro photography of them, and we're going to tell you why we think that is great. We are the podcast of tinyplasticpeople.com. That is a website you can go to to read about our hobby experience and other things which we find interesting. There's lots of articles there. We think it's a lovely place to be. And yeah, so check out our website there. You can also listen to other podcasts there. Uh, I should probably also say like and subscribe and all those other things, which is podcast related. This is episode three, I believe. And today I am James. I am a hobbyist of various kinds. I will probably be talking about AdMech later. That seems to be my brand. And uh, I'm joined by two other lovely individuals. So I'm joined by Tom, or one of the Toms. Which Tom are you? I I am Tom G. I am the um, mandated Tom for this episode. Not to be confused with the Toms you have heard on previous episodes of The Tiny Plastic People. I am a hobby butterfly living in the northeast of England. Lovely. And I'm also joined by Drew. Hi, I'm Drew. I'm pretty much painter first, I think, and a game player second. Um, although I do play a fair bit of stuff, um, so particularly into the sort of specialist game side of things. Excellent. So, the podcast, we kind of go through what we've been doing in the hobby lately to start off with, and then the next part, we bring a bit of a subject to talk around what's going on in the hobby, what's going on in our hobby, or like something that is bothering us about hobby, or whatever it is, basically. Uh, And then we'll talk around that for a while. Let's jump straight in. Drew, what have you been hobbying lately? Quite a bit of stuff. Um, I've sort of spent lockdown jumping around a lot on the things and sort of hobby butterflying about the place, which has been quite enjoyable. And sort of with the idea that lockdown's coming to an end, uh, that actual games might happen soon, and therefore I should probably finish something off. So yeah, I've been trying to concentrate on orcs and or orcs for forty k and dark angels for thirty k. Working on the lion fairly recently, although I, I burnt out a bit on that because it's such a kind of complicated model. I wanted a really nice result, and um, I ended up taking some photos. And I was just looking at them, and I was like oh, it's not coming together how I like. And and then, like, a a sensible way of dealing with it, I just put him at the back of my hobby desk and occasionally catches a glimpse of his half-painted form and uh, continue to ignore him. But uh, I've sort of moved on to 40k stuff. I I don't really have an army for 9th edition. I've obviously got some armies from previous editions, but nothing for 9th. And uh, I kind of got an orc bug recently, or orcs and also goblins, which are sort of, I feel, underrepresented in 40k uh, so i've been sort of working on a lot of conversions and some uh scratch building which has been kind of quite interesting and enjoyable to to learn it's not something i've done much of before so yeah i've been leaning into that tom what have you been working on well i think the main thing i've done recently is um like many people i've recently finished work on a box game that is a callback to a much loved game from games Workshop past space hulk we are up to date and with the times on this podcast and i have just finished painting a box game which i have had sitting in my house for at least half a decade um but it was good fun and it's got me painting blood angels i got another box of blood angels terminators so i now have 20 blood angels terminators and 10 other and 10 other blood angels so it's a completely balanced army there um since then, I've been slightly distracted by Necrons, which you'll hear a bit more about later in this podcast. I painted 
a entire army of night haunt in a month during january which was a fun project which you can read a little bit about on the hobby roundup on on timeplasticpeople.com and most recently i'm currently painting loads of terrain because i'm planning a apocalypse game for for june and rather than paint playing on my terrain which has been for years just bare plastic i thought actually i'd quite like to paint that so and thankfully terrain is relatively quick to paint actually i've done a one of those citadel woods that i used to make i've got two more of those on the go and i managed to paint and the entire set of imperium city ruins from the most recent kill team starter sets recently so that was quite a nice achievement to look at that and go that was quick i think i'm going to be talking a bit about terrain later as well it is so satisfying there's something about it it's just I think it's just the scale, extra scale, and you can just dry brush, you can wash, you can airbrush, you can get effects with spray cans. So much fun. And and one of the great things about painting terrain is you can quite quickly go, actually, this is good enough. It And I think that that's a thing that's really important to learn as a hobbyist, that, that you don't need to take everything up to the same level. With the with my terrain, it's... I. I spray it black, I dry brush it in grey, I dry brush a bit more with uh, lighter grey, and that's pretty much done. And it's effective, it looks good. It is exactly what I want from a background for my my battles, and it's going to look really good hopefully when it's it's done and I can actually play games again. But James, what have you been up to? Well, uh, I have... I, I kind of started the year with just a few like odds and ends um, projects where I was just painting a single custodies, which seems to be the way of things uh, when I'm painting any custodies. They take forever. But at Christmas, I bought myself the the Trog Battle Force or ba- Battle Box, or whatever it was, which came out with a load of trolls and squigs and uh, other gobberpalooza, not gobberpalooza, but I did purchase the gobberpalooza. Basically, I got some goblins, mate. I got lots of goblins, and then I started painting goblins, and that seemed to just kick me out of quite a big funk that I was in, where, well, not a funk, I just wasn't painting that much. I was building things, I was having fun with it, but I uh, then very quickly finished the a box of Moon Clan Grots, and I was really pleased with that, and then I painted a loon boss, and I was really pleased with that too, and then I uh, finished off so when you get that trog box thing, it had a dank hold, dank hold trogoth. Get my names right, get my AOS names right. But it had one of those in there. But I also wanted a trog boss in there as well. Um, and the kit does come with enough bits and bobs to start considering. Ooh, maybe I could kit bash me something in there. So I got myself the fomeroid crusher. Get get all of my names right. And some of the spare bits from the rock gut trogoths box, so the arms, the uh, the heads, and some of the, like the scaly backs and things. And I really like. I've never really approached a project with a lot of green stuff modeling or anything. And I thought, you know, trogs are big, lumpy, asymmetrical things. If I get something wrong on this, it's not going to matter that much. I'm not trying to sculpt a face here. I'm just trying to sculpt a wonky foot so and that's what i did i sculpted some feet i sculpted some back and things on it i sculpted some mushrooms and some uh like growths and stuff onto the back of this uh crusher and then made a head fitter and gave him some arms and built myself a trog 
a trog a dank hold trog boss uh, and i'm really pleased with that um it was really quite a fun project and a really great some people like say oh you should probably you know get all your battle line done before you treat yourself to a character i'm completely the opposite treat yourself to a character first treat yourself to the thing that you want to do first and uh, then see if everything else is fun then eat your hobby vegetables yeah you've got to eat your hobby vegetables but i start with my hobby protein so because that's how you get strong drew you got to get your protein um <laughs> uh, and then I painted 15 Sisters of Silence because they were just in my drawer. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to finish those. And uh, that was my Easter ho- hobby, trying to finish them off. Uh, yeah. I was fingers crossed for the Admet Codex to come out. Probably by the time we've released this podcast, seeing as we record a bit in advance, hopefully it will be out or we'll at least know when it's coming out. But uh, I spent most of the lockdown working on my Admet army with no real structure in mind for what that army actually looks like on the table so i'm excited that there is a skitari marshal coming an extra character i've kitbashed like 12 different types of tech priests to use for whatever purposes there might be but now it's kind of time to see if i can fit that into an army so i'm kind of looking forward to that codex to see how i can make my large amount of painted models actually into a workable force and uh I've also got some more Skitari because it turns out I just can't stop painting Skitari now. Once you start, you can't stop. So I think I'm going to be up to 90 Skitari at some point. That That is an impressive force, 90 Skitari. I, I don't have 90 of anything. I'm not sure I have, have any armies with more than 90 models in them. I mean, the trick with the box is that it comes with two sets of weapons, which means you get one set to build it as a regular unit with the standard things, and then you just go and buy a box of Necromunda stuff, and then you kitbash the other guns onto that. So it's technically two for the price of two, <laughs> but it gives you a bit of variety in there. So I've got the... Um, so in my army, I've got Delac, who have been uh, kitbashed to be rangers, and then I used uh, Vanguard. I used the Corridor box to make some extra Vanguard. So I have those ones, but I've got the Palanite Enforcers on the way to make some more. I can't decide. I think they're going to be more Rangers because they're a bit bulkier. And I quite like that the Vanguard are a bit more hunched and a bit more Corridor-y. So I think that's my plan with those ones. I don't really mind if they don't have robot legs or not. I think it, they just look cool. Actually, no, the the Palanite Enforcers have got to be Vanguard because I don't want to put hoods on them. So there we go. That's that problem solved. That's how I'm going to do it. Hobby solved. The Necromunda boxes have so much value for just converting and kit bashing. And I, yeah, I I need to actually make my Necromunda gangs at some point. I have grand plans for Necromunda. And every time they do a release, it's like, oh, that's a really nice set, that. And I think Admech do as well. Admech is basically the imperial army where you get the most value for those boxes which you get like nearly every box of units builds two different types of unit which gives you spare parts for the other amount the other type of unit if you want to invest in something weird for them and then the law supports that it's great you can just do what you like with it rather than like a space marine box which comes with two different types of bolt gun you still need some more space marine bodies for those bolt guns, whereas Admech, you can stick anything you like on there. Um, pretty much. And to say it's a, a robot got it, it's fine. So yes, 
that that's my hobby basically i'm looking forward to doing some more actually i'm I'm raring to go it's been some great looking stuff to see your progress uh certainly on instagram and how you've how it's been coming along so thank you very much um you can find us all on instagram i'm pretty sure as well so uh we will spill the beans on that at the end of the show so you have to listen to the end or use google i'm sure it's there or use show notes or use the the mystical show notes yes so that's our hobby Let's uh, go to our subjects of the of the month, I guess. So uh, let's start with Tom. You are on the top of the list. What what do you want to talk about this this episode? Well, what I'm going to start off with is a little extract. Uh, I'm not going to say dramatic reading. It's only like two sentences, but a reading from one of the recent White Dwarfs. The deluge of magma caused by the creation of the new Argovan Fault destroyed some 90 plus percent of a Necron tomb complex buried deep beneath Argovan's surface. It's a bit of trinket text. It's a throwaway line in a white dwarf. But the reason I want to talk about it is because I saw that line and thought, wow, there's my Necron army. Like a lot of gamers at the moment, I've got a box of Indomitus to do something with and I had a fairly clear idea of what I want to do with the space means I've got space means already but Necrons were new to me and I was trying to come up with some ideas for how I could paint them I sort of thought well, I, I, do I want to do them really shiny and gold I, I had this plan around maybe doing them inspired by the biblical angels the with sort of glowing gems and replacing all their heads with mat, lots of eyes and stuff really playing off the the, the void dragon Catan model but that felt like a challenge a bit beyond my hobby skills but then i got this this one line from a white dwarf about magma destroying a necron tomb complex and my thought was what if these necrons weren't destroyed but were somehow influenced or reformed by this lava so my my army basically now is what i refer to as lava crons um and i'm painting them as if they have just emerged from magma there's glowing heats within them and blackened surfaces and blue glowing eyes and they look really cool and they're quite a unique idea and what i wanted to bring to the table is and the thing that this reminded me of is that this is how games workshop writes their settings they put a lot of trinket text like this into the settings, into the rule books, into the codexes. Just one-off lines in a fr- fairly throwaway form. And a lot of the idea is to, behind that is to allow you to go, oh, that's a really cool idea. I want, I want to make an army on that. And it's not something I've done for, done for ages. I'm not sure I've ever done it. It's always been thinking, oh, I need to come up with ideas myself. Well, Either I need to come up with the ideas myself or I need to follow really closely to the codex ideas and the colour schemes and the what's the real story with very heavy quotation marks around the word real there. Because I we all we all want to know what the real story behind the factors. I could get the appeal of that. There's a real um call to authority of of whenever there's a secret to be revealed in the Warhammer 40,000 universe, and Age of Sigmar, of course, um, there's an inherent desire to know, oh, I want to know more about that. What's behind that? And this just this mention to the Necrons destroyed by a tomb co- 
by lava. That's never going to be mentioned ever again in I'm fairly confident. But it's me going, oh, actually, I'd like to explore that story. And I suppose my overall thought is, has too much of this mystery, make it up yourself, gone away a bit? And is it something that is worth bringing back into, certainly back into my hobby, when there's a sort of, when there's a correct answer, you can get off the, off a, fa- off a fan wiki. Because there's a lot of really cool lore, and I, I'm absolutely not criticising people who want to make an army that is based on the law. But it's also fun to invent some stuff. And I really like how we can pick a bit of text and go, I'm going to make something of that. So, I mean, have either of you done anything like that recently? Have you got projects inspired by a small snippet? I mean, I'm in a very similar place to uh, to yourself that I had a, a load of Necrons left over from the uh, Indomitus box and like you say I, I didn't have a, uh, a real idea for Necrons so I sort of had them sat to one side and then what, what inspired me was it's the start of the Engine War uh, Psychic Awakening book there's a, a mysterious tech priest who, who gives some other tech priests a device which will help them fight chaos and there's a sort of passing remark that this other you know this mysterious tech priest sure did have a lot of small scarab like beetles crawling around inside their cloak and i was thinking that's actually a really interesting idea for a necron force of some you know stealth necrons who are just are these all my servitors these these silver skeletons yep definitely servitors just don't mind me going about my tech priest business so is this idea of a i wouldn't say imperial necrons but necrons and i I deliberately just sprayed them with chipping fluid and then painted an imperial color scheme over the top of them and have had it chipped off so there's this sort of tech priest who's doing this but is i'll say tech priest necron who's acting as a tech priest who but isn't putting that much effort in because at the end of the day you can just disintegrate all the lesser races so you know you're there to go around rube planets and uh, just do whatever you're up to without too much bother or you know pesky space marines turning up so yeah necrons maybe are the uh, the, the thing requiring inspiration fuel uh, or maybe everyone just ended up with lots of necrons from Indomitus and didn't know what to do with them James? Mm. I've, I think with, particularly with 40k I kind of approach things more from the how do I make what I'm making fit a kind of internal logic so I'm going to talk about AdMech again. It seems to be the thing which I do. But when I was approaching that project, because as I explained earlier, like every kit, I was kind of getting half a kit which was kit bash, half a kit which was the box standard out of it. And then that created a kind of duality in my army, which I then sort of built into my logic of the lore. And then I started thinking, well, what if this forge world actually had a moon attached to it with a giant chain and then one day that chain broke so the moon stayed in orbit and was trading and was fine but they just couldn't be asked to go down to see what was on happening on the planet where they started recycling all the humans into other Skitari and things. And then that created just the headcanon for the entire approach to the army basically that half of it was just these poor imperial individuals who'd been conscripted air quotes into the uh, admech force and then the rest upstanding tech priests on the other part half on floating around on the moon were very loyal and regular and nothing in the law really says that that happens at all apart from the just 
you know, you could kind of assume that that would happen. Once you, once you start going down that route, you could say, well, that seems pretty 40k to me. Nothing says I can't mm-hmm. do that. So I'm just going to go ahead and uh, run with that. But I can see where, like, when you get those little tidbits of, uh, like, spicy lore which really sing to you. I find it more in AOS, actually, but I can't think of an example of it really right now because the only AOS faction I really have is um, the goblins, the, go- the gloom spike gits. And again, because AOS is such a broad space, as long as it kind of has a logic to what you're doing yourself, you don't particularly need those hooks in the law to be there. But I can understand where also, you know, when you see something which just clicks with you and you just want to make that thing in the army, like, uh, I'm, tr- I'm trying to think, like, around, like, the Sisters of Silence and things, they've come back to the Imperial Fold, they're now based on uh, the moon on Luna, and then they're going back out with the Indomitus Crusade. That gives you, like, I want to merge mine with my Solar Watch uh, custodies, which mean, and they're the ones patrolling the Segmentum Solar and uh, protecting the Imperium. And yeah, they, it, it kind of gives you your army that kind of logic within the setting, regardless of what you're doing, almost. So I think it's fine. I actually... I find it's harder with if you're say like blood angels. So blood angels are a chapter of space marines. Here is all the lore about blood angels. I've just read um, or listened to one of the Dante books, the one of the more recent uh, darkness in the blood or something. And it explicitly, no, I won't say that because it will be a spoiler, but uh, it, it's not full of things that are inspiring to me. Because it's actually saying, this is the law. This is how things are. And you can't change those things. Like, there are characters within the book who act a certain way, and certain things happen to them, and it's all supported by the game, as you can go into a shop and buy it off the shelves and build it to the codex specifications, basically. And that's actually quite quite restrictive Mm. for me. And that's probably why I don't paint many of my Blood Angels anymore. Like, I do like painting them. Uh, I really enjoy just, you know, painting a Space Marine every so often. I'm sure we all do. Everyone's got to do a cheeky Space Marine every so often. But the fact that there's so much lore behind them, and because it is quite restrictive, if you do stick to those core chapters and you do stick to those, like, if you stick to Ultramarines, if you do blood angels dark angels there's not much room for maneuver in there i i find and i've seen examples of it but and it can be quite intimidating i think to have such a large amount of lore behind a blood chap a blood chapter a blood ain't a space being chapter such as the blood angels there's so many um things which are known and and one of the things i felt quite recently was that I, when I got the most recent Blood Angels Codex, there was a lot of things which were hinted at, which I, as a fairly long-standing hobbyist, knew more about, but wasn't set out in the Codex. And that was a bit a bit frustrating for me, because if I was a new player, it's difficult to tell the difference between is it a hook I can build around, or is it a thing I need to know more about? And that can be quite intimidating and i think that there's a lot of lovely projects of think someone's saying right i want to make the accurate complete blood angels fourth company or something that's a really fun interesting hobby project but it's not for everyone and i think that 
the 40k setting and the AOS setting are massive universes and this is the thing that I think AOS in particular has done really well recently of having the realms and having quite explicitly in the way they are presented saying we are only showing you a portion of this you there are other cities other areas which we are not exploring in the game and it's giving that permission to explore the edges of the realms the edges of the galaxy and it's it's a difficult um tension i think because games workshop wants to focus things on special characters on the stories they're telling and people obviously want to be involved in those but it's also people want to be able to tell their own stories and i think the tool which i use to try and um allow that would be remembering that really both of these settings use the unreliable narrator that is a thing that's worth remembering about and having explicitly said a bit more i think um one of the favorites phrases they have in the warhammer community podcast which is a good listen to if you finish listening to this is absence of evidence is not evidence of absence by which they mean that just because we don't say something exists doesn't mean it doesn't exist and i think that's a really useful way of thinking about it and also even if they do say something happened in a particular way it's somewhat inherent in the setting that information is broken the warp messes everything up um chaos is everywhere it may not be actually that that's how it went down that's just how people think it went down so it's quite possible i think to create one's own corners in the universe and explore those but it can be difficult to get into that so i think my um fundamental conclusion here is that the law is a great jumping off point and the ex- the amount to which you jump in- into the pool can vary person to person and there's lots of different ways of exploring and lots of different ways of using that law either as a guide um, as an inspiration as a thing to ignore frankly and they're all good and valid i think i think there's an interesting point you know and almost maybe a counterpoint to two things that both yourself and James have said is that I think Games Workshop are quite good at giving people the possibility to space and I feel in some ways it's them want to have their cake and eat it with you know certain bits of lore which they always like to tease at and I don't think they're ever going to reveal you know um classic stuff is kind of like oh is, is a bad and a clone of Horus and things and there's stuff each way and I think a, a lot of this actually what comes down to isn't from Games Workshop it's you know Games Workshop like to put just loads of teaser stuff in you know they'll, they'll just take a shotgun approach and put all sorts of stuff out but and I think in a lot of hobby communities actually you know not just Games Workshop stuff but you know in other, other science fiction or you know the like people want to sort of canonize things and sort of fanonize or indirectly fanonize stuff where they want things to be true so you know and you as a real fan write these wikis and this is the definitive thing and yeah like you say it's like you know at the end of the day they're, they're just stories that are being told and if you think that's you know i have this interesting position that i am quite an old hobbyist but then i missed you know 20 years worth of hobby activity background and stuff from like 97 to 2017 so i've kind of come in and be like oh these things are all this now are they and stuff and it's you know they, they will just you know if they want to will just change the timelines and they will just change it. I mean, the Black Library books have all sorts of sort of weird mistakes and things in. And I think at the end of the day, you just have to kind of imagine that ah, it's just a bunch of stuff that someone said happened to tell a story. It isn't this kind of blow-by-blow documentary of of the history of whatever time period it is. 
And I think when you try and do that, you could have ended up in a very restrictive place. I mean, that was one of the old world's problems, but it had this very narrow possibility space of where things could be and where certain cities could be doing stuff, you know, and what was going on in the realms. And I certainly would expect that maybe when you know, the hinted at old world returns is they might take a Horus Heresy approach to it and say, oh, the entire game is a is the timeline of the Empire, you know. You can set your game at the time of Mag... Uh, I can't remember, was it Magnus the Pious? Or, you know, whichever the various emperors are. It isn't just Karl Franz fighting one thing. You know, the, the big battle of note isn't Battle of Blackfire Pass. You, know, the, the, you are looking at the entire timeline of the Empire or the entire timeline of the sort of world, and you know you, you could feel different armies. So that and you, you know, the, the games you might be playing might be those campaigns. And I think Horus Heresy is very interesting from that point of view as well. That it's you know a lot of the way the documents are written for Horus Heresy is that they are written as literal accounts in the world, but they're historical accounts of stuff that might have happened and. Hmm. Uh, one of the more recent Siege of Terror books does interesting things with it, where they take old Games Workshop legends, and there's a you know, specific in-narrative talk about how stories work, and they're retelling the legend of the guardsman who front- stood in front of the Emperor, uh, between Horus and the Emperor, but they're retelling it now as just a man who, you know, stood in front of some demons and stuff, and maybe a banner of the Emperor and things, and it's, you know, maybe later on in the Siege they are going to show this actual event that people have always talked about or you know as they actually talk about in the story it's like the stories are what is important the facts themselves are not and i think that is what you know everyone's doing so you know if you want to have your army of i don't know something really weird and out there it isn't invalidating other people's army choices and stuff and the way they want to play things no that's a really important thing to also remember is that you can do what you like, really. It's a hobby. It's a fun thing if you want to. If you want to find those bits of lore and make something which is really consistent and something which is fine, and that's the thing that you really love, by all means, do it. And if that's the way that you find inspiration for things, that's even better. I think Games Workshop are fantastic at finding, the, like like I was saying, those little bits of lore, like the piece you read at the very beginning, Tom, to just to say this is an idea that worked for you that is that the little thing that clicks you to i don't know buying 100 pounds worth of necrons and painting them i mean that that's probably their main goal really um but it doesn't invalidate anything really people should hobby the way they want to and never try and invalidate how anyone else wants to engage with the hobby the the lovely things that really occur within the hobby is sometimes when you get those little bits where two bits of lore brush up against each other or two people's armies like sink together into something where you can have those lovely campaign moments but that is like almost that's 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 something where you know you're you're hobbying together and you're communicating and you're having a basically a conversation on the tabletop and creating a story and creating your own lore and that is what you're doing every time you roll dice on the table you're creating your own lore for the whole experience and that's a really lovely thing about it it's like the it's like playing a game of D with your friends or role playing it, it's that same thing it's the shared experience which you're having so who cares really if or like what is the story of like you putting your army of blood angels down where you've painted your chaplains red because you know what maybe in 10 years they thought about for like 10 years on campaign they went oh our chaplains will wear red in i don't know in uh, honor of sanguinius's birthday or something and then 
fighting against uh, a load of Hello Kitty Marines. Wait, who? That's that's just a thing that happens. That's that's beautiful and lovely and and can work or can you know it's 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 just a thing to have fun with really it's it's really nice and um the whole unreliable narrator thing just to you know be a slightly more serious thing is like it works even for the horus heresy like there's specific points in the siege of terror books where they're saying you you're going to record this battle that's cool yeah we're not going to actually let those records come out though are we no <laughs> no one will know in 10,000 years what happened here no one knows why we did it we just did it because it felt like the right thing to do at the time and to uh, maybe someday someone might learn something of this time that's what i really like about the siege of terror as well is that they they keep they keep going back to these things and just twisting it a little bit more and just like saying you know what everything is still wrong so you can play horus heresy any way you want as well frankly so yeah i, I think i'll just end this section on mentioning one of my favorite bits of this that's recently come out where um Gulliman was talking has come back from his 10,000 year sleep and he's at the Imperial Palace and he's consulting the experts and goes, I have no idea what date it is. None whatsoever. It is completely unknown what the actual Imperial date is. And just that outright, because we all want to put dates on things and go, yes, this is what happened here. And no, we have a guess. But things like that are really good in-universe examples of this unreliable narrator, and I hope to see more of it. And But it is just one way of engaging with the hobby, and there's nothing wrong with um, saying, I want to stick to a particular bit of lore, or I want to do Hello Kitty Marines. It's your hobby do what you want with it exactly i think that's it's a really good thing and i think also this kind of leads quite nicely onto what drew wanted to talk about this episode so drew i can see you clicking into the document <laughs> i can see where the cursor appears and uh let's uh talk about uh what you bring to the table this time yes i mean this is going to be very familiar in some parts to for james because james and i both ran well, certainly the last game I played was at an Inc. 28 event in March last year. So now over a year since I last played anything. Yeah, so, you know, James and I obviously have a, a history going back with Inc. 28. But I was talking to someone the other day about sort of the, the possibility spaces and, you know, what, what you can do with games. And, and this is almost in a sort of physical way, but also in a, you know, Growing off, you know, what Tom was talking about, growing off from the sort of the law thing side of stuff is you have games like Inc. 28, which are obviously growing off from from the 40k universe and things. But then you, you've also got games like Turnip 28 and Sludge. And these are games that are, they're quite involved. They are, you know, all independent. They're all sort of fan if not fan-driven, but sort of very fan-supported, sort of grassroots support, I suppose. And that's coming from the model side and also from the kind of setting and storytelling side. And the sort of thing I was talking to with this person was saying, was that, you know, how much of a market is there for that? And really, is that the kind of thing that 
bigger games should be doing should there be more opportunities for things where you can have sort of a lot of flexibility in your hobby and in your storytelling or is it better that they stay kind of boutique games where only a few people are interested but maybe very keen i well i wonder if it's worth first explaining what's um i mean because i'm familiar with ink 28 but and vaguely familiar with Termit 28 but i've not come across sludge at all so what is sludge I don't think Sludge is out yet. There's some sort of d- demo rules. Uh, I will extract them and put them in the show notes for anyone who's interested. But it's basically a kind of fantasy Napoleonic Europe where everything is is very awful. And so Napoleonic Europe then? Uh, I mean, more awful that you could have you you from my sort of brief skim of the rules, you, you bleed kind of Sludge and horror out of yourself when you're being attacked and this is what interferes with your kind of your abilities to act as units and things and you've got you know more sorcerers than napoleon fielded and it's very much about basically going through the perry miniatures web store and buying whatever you fancy and then sticking bits to them which i think is to be honest what turnip 28 is as well is you know you, you buy a lot of historical bits and glue other stuff to them and put green stuff on them and now they're they're something else so they're you know they're very creative i suppose background wise and ideas wise of what's going on i think there's there's an interesting question in there is like how big is big enough to warrant people to engage with something because we live in the age of the internet where we can send podcasts to people and a podcast can support a small community or it can support a very wide subject. And the same with war games and the same with like your hobby and your creations and what you're engaging with. And it's very hard to actually determine how big something is. Like, I don't really know how big Ink 28 is. I know it's pretty big. I know it's like big enough to they featured it in war, uh, White Dwarf a few times. But how big's White Dwarf, really? And it supports a community of people on Instagram, but there's also communities on uh, Reddit, where I never go. And there's discords about it. And so for something like, say, Sludge, is that a group of people getting together and just thinking, hey, let's just write some rules and make this thing work and take some nice pictures? Um, How many people is that? Is that five? Is that 50? Is it 100 people who's interested? And also, does that really matter? Um, because like the thing which I found interesting about when we in, uh, ran our Ink 28 campaign was that, to be fair, we didn't engage with the wider Ink community, Ink Ink 28 community at all. Because you don't actually have to. You can just go online. You can mooch about the forums. You can find some rules to use. You can talk to your friends, and you can say, "Let's do this thing. Let's just go ahead, and we're going to use these rules. We're going to make these models. Uh, send me some rules. We'll string it all together into a campaign, and then that's our little thing." And the idea of that is less about like saying, that's ours, you can't touch it. It's now that we could publish those things or just show what we did and use it as an inspiration point for other people to go away and do their own thing. So I kind of see Sludge as almost a... And Turnip 28, and I was looking at the Planet 28 rules as well. It's it's just... It's, it's like it's like open source communities it's like here's a load of things that the community has driven it's not really financially driven so you don't have to worry too much about 
selling your product at that point, which Games Workshop obviously do. Games Workshop require a community to support a game. And even like Stargrave has just come out. That needs players to support the sale of the books, to support the sale of the kits, to make sure that this thing is a success. And we've seen games disappear because they're just not played by people so people don't engage with those things anymore and then they as a financial as a tangible capitalist product it's no longer a thing that is relevant at all so they don't support it anymore and people drift away from that community thinking it's dead but really if that thing was a community driven thing if that was something which bubbled up from people's hobby and just interests does it even matter how big that thing actually is at that point to engage with maybe sludge is meant to be played by seven people and that's all it will ever do cool that's that's fine with me it's but if it is it going further than that that's kind of what i would put into the conversation i guess um it, it, it's, it's more like community engagement and how excited is the community about their own product in a sense i mean i think i think there's a um carryover to the games workshop lines as well because what i've been thinking while you've both been talking is a thing i'm a big fan of in game design and how i approach my hobbies which is thinking of the game system as a toolbox and when you're talking with your um, friends and saying, right, we want to have a game of um, 40k, there's an element of working out which bits from the toolbox um, you want to make use of there. And I would see Inc. 28, Turnip 28, that ilk, as being parts of that toolbox, not produced by Games Workshop, um, but produced by other communities, Um and not produced by a professional company, but it's still part of that wider toolbox. And it, essentially, the hobbies, are there so many crossovers between different collections, different people? Everyone will have their own unique mix of things they like from that toolbox. And what you need to do is find people who have a similar taste in toolbox. You can go, well, okay, you've got, you've got a slightly different screwdriver than I do, but I think we can make this work. And... So what what you want is to go into these spaces, see what people think. Go, okay, I like that bit. I don't like that bit. And can I find other people who are like that and bring it all together? And I think Games Workshop, because I mean, we are primarily a Games Workshop podcast, I'll, I'll talk about those, has an element of that. So things like the Psychic Awakening books, I very much saw those as extending the toolbox with their scenarios and their... Um, environments they produced in those and i know that they weren't necessarily the most popular thing because i think a lot of people and i think there's a reasonable argument to be made for wanting to have the one true way of playing um so you can just go and pick up a game with a random stranger i think that's a perfectly valid thing to want and i think you need to have that baseline um, for a game like um 40k but there's also and increasingly so now with things like Crusade, a bit more variety in that. And I think that's the thing I want to see carrying on. And I'm very keen, once I'm able to, start getting involved in things like Inc. 28 and Turnip 28 and whatever um, community events I can find in my local area because it can be difficult to find things which match you. And you think, oh, I need to go along with um, what's going on. But 
I think that with the internet in particular, it's become much more possible to search out people who have a similar thought and go, oh, actually, I'm willing to travel three hours to meet up with this group who are having a campaign weekend for a game which sounds like exactly my thing. Um, it's a thing I do in other hobbies as well. And I'm really quite keen to start doing it for um, for my modelling hobbies as well. Yeah, yeah, I, I completely agree that it's it, it's it, it's symptomatic of us being a more connected hobby the hobby being a bigger place and also i think particularly with ink 28 and sludge and um those things is that there is more you can access more people's artwork as well like you're not restricted by the artwork which is pumped out by games workshop as the inspiration points like there's so many more video games these days and they all have art books and they all have hooks and they all have interesting backs backstories and things like that and particularly with uh turnip 28 and sludge and things like that i see a lot of interesting hooks taken from say the dark souls games and things like that which has really then fed back into people's hobbies and people really i think glom onto the things that they like about other things and stick them into the things that they like and there's so much more free-flowing ideas and that's a really lovely thing and as you were saying tom it's easier to find people who you want to talk to about those things and it's easier to find someone who wants to like say hey let's do a campaign about that what rules should we use let's do our own rules or let's take these rules and stick them into whatever we want like is warcry 40k a thing which we want to try for this thing could we make that work for our campaign today because that might be fitting. Like, we're going to do brutal combat arenas for, like, the Drukari. What would be the perfect rule set for that? Mm, I think Games Workshop did one. Let's nick their rules and do that. And then it makes it more accessible to people because you can say, hey, join our game. We're going to use these rules, which you could just go buy in a shop and then we're, as a jumping off point, and then we're going to make these tweaks. And again, like I was saying, a bit like open source software, it starts treating rule sets as a thing that you can grow and change as a hobbyist. And that's a really, really lovely thing. Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's, there's quite a lot of, of possibilities you can do there with stuff. And I, I suppose one of the sort of the big barriers to entry, and, and this comes from also running an Inc. 28 event, and I don't think we were particularly sort of hardcore about it, but it's, you know, the... The space for conversions, and and maybe James should be I don't know either banned or just wholly encouraged to talk here, but the you know the space for conversions in these projects is obviously quite a key element. Do you think that's a sort of a barrier to entry, or well maybe it obviously is a barrier to entry to some degree, but how serious a barrier of entry do you think it is, and do you think there's anything that people as a whole could do to kind of make that that first step sort of lower for people? So. One thing I'll say, I, th- I think it is a bit of a barrier to entry, but not necessarily in the way that um, you might think in terms of being difficult and um, hard to get into. I'm sure some people find that. But for me, the big barrier of entry with things like this, with conversions nowadays, is the basic models are just so gorgeous. I don't want to cut them up. I want to do them as they are. Um, I've got my Kill Team Rogue Trader set, and part of me thinks oh i could do lots of cool conversions of those but also part of me like also i want to do those as they are um i mean the, the classic example for me is the gelapox infected so i've used some of them in my death guard army um but it also comes with a whole load of little worms and grubs and other insects which 
are really nice models and part of me thinks i could use those for basing i could use those all over the place in my death guard army or over collection but also if i do that i can't use them for the main the way they were intended and i think with the galapox effect it's unlikely i would use them in the way they were intended but that's possibility space with being quite expensive models and having to it, it's, it's intimidating so in terms of that barrier to entry i think that being able to i think a large part of the appeal of ink 28 and turn 28 and games like that is converting and um, making things their own but it can also be achieved with a nice paint job and i think there's a part in the community going right we want this game and if you want to convert things, you can. But also, here's a, a few examples of how we've used existing models with very minor conversions. And so we're just going to do a little bit and tweak it to whatever suits you. And that's also okay. And then people might want to go, actually, I'm inspired now. I'm going to do something really cool for the next game. And I think that feeling you have to convert everything is a barrier. And but whereas if you think actually I'm going to convert this one model really nicely and these other ones will be on theme and support it could help. Yeah, I I really agree. I think the the barrier to entry is the perceived amount of talent required mm-hmm. to invest yourself and contribute to the to the community or to the game or to the conversions or to the paint jobs and things like that. And that is something which is completely antithetical to. What I think uh, it should not be that way. It, uh, if people feel that I can't join in with this thing because I'm not a good enough converter or I've never converted something before, that's a bad thing. The community in it in place there should be open and welcoming and say it's okay. You don't have to do those things. Like we're just invested in like invest invest yourself in the way that you want to, and it, it's 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 triggering my work brain because like i write instructions and manuals in my day job and the thing which you should never do is say oh just simply do that because for someone that's not a simple thing it might be like the bravest thing they've ever done to chop off that power sword Mm. and that's something which we have to be uh empathetic empathetic to because everyone starts somewhere everyone is on their own journey and as I said during the other chat, it's, like it's it's their hobby as much as anything. And just because they're they're not doing some someone is like not contributing a, a, a great new conversion in a new fantastic way, or is not creating something which is like fifty millimeters high off the table and covered in wings, something like that. That's fine. It doesn't have to be that hard. So I think there is a lot of intimidation with these communities. Just to want to contribute to them and it's up to the community in that case or up to us if we're contributing to that community as well to make sure that it is a it is a welcoming place and that you know you support people but you know you're never like saying you can't contribute or you can't you can't come and play in our thing if you haven't painted your models to this standard that's wholly wrong Mm. so and I don't think any of the communities are actually like that, but I can see why it's intimidating because if you go on Instagram and you put in Ink28 or you put in Sludge and things, you're going to see some absolutely stunning things. But like all social media, they're all putting on their best face. They're all putting on their... um, they're all putting 
out their their best versions of themselves a lot of the time. But look at the making ofs, look at the work in progresses and things and look how like if you're looking at a painting style or you're looking at that, just look how a lot of the time with Ink 28 particularly, look how messy it is. It's fine. Like a lot of it, the a lot of the style actually comes in that case from just like spraying a load of paint on something, doing like a zenith or over shade highlight, and then just highlighting about three bits of it to just make the miniature pop, and that's it. You can see the grain, you can see the brush strokes. They don't thin their paints half the time. The monsters. Yeah, and just to build on on what you've been saying there, you never know um, when you might actually have inspired someone. Um, even if you're relatively new to a community, even if you're relatively new to painting in general, I consider myself still quite an amateur painter, but I, I do still contribute to the hobby roundups we do on Time Plastic People. And so in January, I put up my, my Night Haunt, which I mentioned briefly at the start of the podcast, where I had decided to speed paint an army. And then the next month, someone else in our community, I think it was Nush, um, said that they were inspired to do their Night Haunt quickly because they'd seen my army. They'd seen what I'd do with the speed painting. And now whenever I see one of their Night Haunt, and they are doing some beautiful Night Haunt models there, I think they're doing that because I sparked that idea in them. And that's really nice. And you, so you never know, even if you're new to a community, just say, here's what I'm doing. What do people think? And if it's a friendly community, which a lot of hobby communities are, there will be people saying, yes, that's great. Um, oh, have you thought about this? Or, oh, there's an idea I can use. Yeah, for sure. It's a really... It, most communities are lovely, welcoming places. And one thing which I would always encourage people to do is look at the guidelines for those communities, particularly if you're like jumping into a new Discord or if you're jumping into a forum of some kind. Things like codes of conduct and things like um, like just the welcome channel, see if they lay out their rules and things behind them. Because just as a general tip you will you will see in in the ones which i consider the best communities you'll see things like if you're just posting a model don't critique it in in a in a like in a way that's like more open some communities will like if someone asks for criticism on their project by all means if someone asks for like how can i make this mechanic work in my game that's a question that's an open question for a community but otherwise people keeping their mouth shut if they don't like something someone does the best thing to do is to not say anything at that point like because you're not going to contribute anything to anything but bad feels and putting someone off the hobby if someone shows their first ever orc and you go oh you didn't uh, you didn't use a textured uh, base on that that's a bit strange isn't it that's a that's basically being a bad human at that point that's basically you but if they say how can i make the basing better of this and then by all means, get out the texture painting thing. It is my biggest bugbear when I see someone like say on like an Instagram post, it's just like, oh, well, might I just ask why you didn't use a textured roller on there instead of cutting out little bits of uh, plastic card for your cobblestones? May I just ask? It's like, may you just piss off because no one asked for that. That's just being an ass, And that is off-putting for people in the community. That is... Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, and there is James on his high horse. Anyway, uh, uh, yes, I think that's obviously is a, a bad way of acting. I, I think maybe more useful, and certainly for myself, and it's something I know I'm bad for. Is that you know I'm quite a non-standard painter. I, I don't work in a way a lot of people do. And if you know people ask you things, 
you're just like, oh, I don't know, I just did some, let's put some paint on it, you know, and it's like you're saying about the professional thing is, you know, when you're at work is you never should be saying just do X or just do Y because, and I think X Warhammer TV Duncan said something along the times when he was very young, he'd come up to someone in a store and just said, oh, how do you get that effect? And I like, oh, just dry brush it. And that didn't mean anything to him at the time. And it was very off-putting. So, you know, and as the news does paint very differently, I, I find it hard because you don't want to just be like, well, here's the mental stages I go through and why I do things. You want to give a brief answer. So it's making sure you phrase things in a sensible way. And I think for, yeah, maybe for the more out there communities, it's more of a risk because it is just like, yeah, I just bunged some green stuff on and then I gave it an XYZ paint coat with this material and did whatever. So, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. But like you say, I think it is at the end of the day about building better communities. Yeah, I think mean, that's language being a barrier to entry as well. Like, not everyone knows what a zenith or highlight is when they start doing something. So maybe if someone looks new to the community, don't use the word zenithal to introduce them to the concept. Just say, oh, maybe think about where the light falls on the model, because that's what the concept is. And that's that's how to address that as a more approachable, more accessible way for someone to engage with um, what some people think is a high-level paint technique, and other people don't think is a high-level painting technique. But it is still a painting technique, and it still uses all of this painterly language which people use to put things into boxes and ink 28 and just going back to like sludge and things like that they are boxes and they are people jumping into these boxes to explore something and having fun with it but they need to make sure that those boxes are invite inviting for everyone else to jump into at the same time and that's really important with any community and i think games workshop does a great job a lot of the time with their bigger products because they're a company they've got investment in user experience a lot of the time but smaller communities don't have that experience all the time. And having a small community can become quite insular. And that's really something that any community should aim to not be. Because you want to be growing your community. You want to be growing your cool new style. Like, what if one day uh, uh, an anime style kept started for 40k and uh, it became like anime 40k and it was a whole movement to make everything big heads and big eyes and everyone mm-hmm. was really happy about this new style but you don't want to start being gatekeepy over what that style actually is because then it's like oh well those are the anime 40k boys don't go near them agreed i mean i, I think i could very easily go off onto a large sort of tangent about talking about painting things and how how to communicate about painting stuff so I, i'm gonna resist that and and not do so maybe for next time <laughs> maybe for next time yeah i mean it's an easy next topic uh talking about next topics then james it, it says here that you want to talk about silly projects do you want to enlighten us i do so uh apologies to anyone who could not purchase the game cursed city we know that there is a curse on this game however i was lucky enough to pick up a copy of it on release and i started a project where i was inspired by it basically i thought i love those tiles and i actually really love blackstone fortress i think i I wrote an article on tiny practice people about how much i loved it really and where i thought the problems were and blah 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 but that's an article on the website uh i haven't actually had a chance to actually play cursed city yet due to uh mitigating factors in the world but i was really really um inspired by the the actual artwork and the tiles and the style and Frankly, it is a beautiful game. It's a really, really lovely box of stuff that I'm very sorry not many more people can play. But what I started with it was, I was like, I'm going to build this city. I'm going to 
get these tiles and I'm going to make 3D versions of them because I think it's a lovely, lovely just inspiration, basically. And also, I love Bloodborne. I just wanted to kind of have an excuse to build Yarnum. So, as well, I wanted to jump into that and see if I can make these two hobby things work. And that started almost before the game arrived. I started picking up bits and bobs to make this project work. I started thinking about how I can make these tiles. I ended up with lots of... Um, actually, I went into the shed and I found a load of foam board in there. And I was like, well, that's the base for all the tiles then. And then how am I going to make this project work? Because all the, tr- the tiles, they're double-sided. How can I do that? And then I started having this... I think, in, in hindsight, it's a bit of a silly idea. I put pillars on my first ones. I made the tiles double thickness and then i made it so you could flip over the actual physical 3d tiles and they would be a 3d essentially diorama on each side of the thing and then i thought about how the walls would have to fit on there to give it a bit more thing so then i was thinking about magnets and then i was thinking about like how does this all work together it turns out it's probably actually easier for me to not get too many magnets involved it's probably easier for me to not put your 3D dioramas on stilts because then as a game playing thing you've got something which is now 10 centimeters off the table which you're having to look down on which means everyone would have to lean over anyway it was a bit of a silly plan and I've wound it back a bit but it still does mean I need to make 40 of these tiles because it comes with 20 double-sided tiles and I don't think those kind of things through when I start a project particularly. I just kind of thought it would be a fun idea. And I've kind of committed myself to it now. I've talked about it on a podcast. I've talked about it on our Discord a few times. And um, yeah, I've kind of trapped myself into that. So regardless, it's very fun. I actually love new projects because... Once I once I get going on something like an armies on parade board or once I find that little hint of inspiration to go off and do that thing. And this is also like me saying a statement, I'm actually going to finish this. But it is easier to finish once you've got the once you're rolling and there's no real timeline involved with this project as well. Like I could spend from now until September doing building these um, little cursed city boards and building it up myself and sculpting the bases, cutting my own cobblestones out of plastic card one by one for 40 of these things don't know where i got that smart idea from but i i I did i started it that way so i'm probably going to finish it that way because efficiency savings are not in my vocabulary but it was it was yeah i just kind of committed to it and then i was just like well this seems fun i'm just going to do this and what can i learn along the way like today i'm going to attempt to make a tree i've never made sculpted a tree before but there's not many dead trees out there um in the hobby sphere so i thought well if i make it myself it's fine so freed up from the big game and things it's a like a big game like up up and coming or like a project with a timeline or something like that i just kind of wanted to talk about like what is your mindset going in starting a big project because i very rarely actually start a very big project i i like to hobby in a very Like, just grab something one day, grab something the next day. Oh, this is becoming a bit of an army. I never, like, do a list and say, I'm going to buy everything on that list and then I'm going to paint everything on that list and then there's my Stormcast army or anything like that. I just don't approach projects in that way. And that means that I very rarely have an army which I can use in-game or use effectively in-game if I was to go into a tournament or something. But at the same time, 
uh, I'm very happy with the end results because once it's all done, it's like my thing and it's just there and it's a thing which I worked for like two years on or something and it's complete. So, I mean, that's the way I approach it. Like uh, a big project just kind of evolves and occurs and comes out of the ether and then slaps you over the face and says, make 40 tiles. Yeah. So I, I, I was bringing this about to sort of say, well, what's your mindsets going into a big project? What big projects have you suddenly found yourself stuck in or do you keep it small for as long as possible i think i'm very much like you in my um in, in my gate in my gaming and my approach to connecting of i will do a little bit of this a little bit of that and suddenly have an accidental death guard army is my approach to to the hobby but i think that my big projects are thinking there's a big a, a single thing on the horizon and it'll be a thing i'll be marinating for quite a long time before i actually take the plunge and and do it and thinking right what is the so i don't sit down and write a plan but i will be planning in my head so the big projects which i want to do at some point in the next few years probably maybe this year maybe maybe i'll finally get around to doing it this year is my knight castellan i have an idea for a knight castellan which is the monarch of its world and as a result it has a big diorama on top of it uh, with the throne of this monarch sitting in their throne and directing the forces so i've got this vision in my head for this project but when i first thought of it i thought okay well i need a knight castle obviously but what else do i need and it's been quite a lot of time of occasionally thinking is this the right piece for it no that doesn't quite work um there's the the coven throne for the vamp vampire counts i might make use of that there's i can't remember the name of it there's the throne which is made of lots of bones the fleshy to court fleshy to courts one is potentially the one i'm going to because the rest of the knights in the army have also got lots of skulls on them but i haven't yet taken the plunge on it so my approach is a lot of thinking about it and so that when I'm actually going to do it, I'm confident that that's actually how it's going to work. Um, there was actually quite a gorgeous Knight Castellan conversion that I saw online recently where someone had taken the a whole load of Sisters of the Battle parts, and in particular the... Ju- I think it's, her name's Judith. She's got in the giant floating thing with the eagles, and they'd taken those eagles and put those on, front of it, on the front of it as a pulpit. I'm thinking, hmm... That's interesting as an idea. Maybe that's something I could do. But I think it's because I am, as I say, said right at the start of this episode, a hobby butterfly that I don't tend to have large projects, or at least I don't have... I think I'd get scared if I thought of it as a large project, even if it was a large project. Um, it's just, oh yeah, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just painting Mortarion for this, as a nice holiday project. That's fine. Um, I've just accidentally painted 2,000 points of Death Guard over the last year because I thought oh, I'll just finish off the the Dark Imperium box set, and um, oh, I've got these things from Conquest as well. So it just sort of adds up, really. And suddenly, you've got this project. So accidental, but vaguely planned, as and taking the plunge when I'm truly ready, I think is the way I'd sum up my approach there. Mm-hmm. I think that's a good... Well, I empathise with that place to be. I, I, I come up with lots of ideas when, like, if I go out for a run or something, and that's just time to be just... It's it's like the standing in the shower thinking time where you're just sat there just like going, how would that work? Mm. That would work like this. What if I just did that? <gasps> and what if I added this on top of it? Oh, that could work. 
that could work, James, that could work. And then you start running faster because you need to get around to write that idea down or to start putting it into a basket, into a shopping basket, which you probably shouldn't buy, but then you do anyway. Yeah, the, the shower thoughts approach is a really key thing for me. I think that part of it is not thinking about a thing for a while and thinking, oh, actually, that's how I can do it. So the, I, mean, I talked about my Necrons in my section of this episode. Um, for a long time, I was thinking, how can I do these? I want, to, I want to do a Necron army. I quite like the idea. But I just could not come up with the idea. And then suddenly, I was casually reading the White Dwarf, and I thought, there's my army. And sometimes it'll just hit you. And then I started painting them, and they have rapidly accelerated up, up my painting list because of it. But it was only when I was really thinking, I had that flash of inspiration, which I had been waiting for, Drew, how about you? Yeah, how how do I manage big projects? I mean, the the short answer I think is is badly, but yeah, I I do these days particularly try and have a kind of a managed structure for stuff, and part of that is keeping my time workload sensible, and then the other part of it is just if I only have so much space to to have projects, particularly larger projects, out on the workbench, so. Yeah, it is. It is good for me to sort of to to manage stuff, and I guess I do try and do that in, a, in as a work away as possible. That you know, when I look at a project, I'll try and predict the number of hours in it, and at least roughly plan out what's what's sort of going to be happening. Uh, I mean, lockdown for me has been quite pleasant that I have been able to flit around between stuff, but I am quite guilty that. You know, I'll, I'll want things done for an event, or want things done, you know, because I know I'm going to be playing that, you know, that game or whatever, and or I'm organising something, uh, and then it always leads to kind of quite a bad, I suppose, bad mental health state where you end up thrashing yourself to try and get something finished, and I've done that so many times now that I really don't want to be doing that again. Yeah, it's 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 like. I'm definitely not the kind of person who finds having a plan like particularly comforting, but I also I understand that if there is a target involved with something, you do kind of need a plan and you need to hit your hit your goals along the way to achieve that plan, particularly with large projects like when someone has an army project or something like that. But on the other hand, are there many projects with I guess this is this is quite mental healthy and, and stuff like that. I can't think of many projects I've actually failed entirely because I don't think of them as things which I can fail, really. And that's how I kind of approach things like this. Like If I approach to make 40 tiles for Curse City and I make 20, I'm going to actually probably be happy with 20 because along the lines, I'm probably either going to run out of money or run out of time or run out of people to play curse city with or realize i've built something i can't play curse city with and then i'll see well well, i've done that thing it's a thing but that's because it's a project that is entirely self-motivated and self-driven like that and i think i've always run creative projects for myself like that i've released albums i've done music and stuff like that and i always approach it like that i very rarely have a deadline but one thing i used to do was play live and that's a different experience that's like oh shit i need to practice i need to have all of my stuff sorted on my computer i need to do all of this stuff and it's incredibly stressful for me and i just don't do it anymore you never know (laughs) but i think they say that you can pull it back to hobby and you can pull it back and say well you know if it's an if it is an army project if it is something for a particular thing then it is something you can actually fail at and that's quite stressful i think for me it 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 harkens back to one of the 
greatest realizations I had in my life, actually, um, in recent years. That hobby hobbies are supposed to be fun, and it sounds really obvious when you say it. But for a long time, I was thinking of my spare time as time I need to be productive, and I think this is a thing I sh- this is what I should be doing with my time. So it might be a project. It might be I need to I don't know sort my magic the gathering cards i need to i or i need to paint that army because it's, and and what it would do it, it demotivate me i think i don't want to paint that army right now it's just sitting there and it was only when i said no i'm doing this because i enjoy it and if i'm not enjoying it i will stop doing it and it then became a question of what is the thing i'm going to most enjoy in that time and that has massively improved my relationship with my hobbies with my um, spare time and be able to think no i'm not in the mood to do some painting today i'm not going to have this project hanging over me but occasionally i just go oh, i'm just gonna paint some necrons today and i think it helps i say it helps that i'm a hobby butterfly in that and i think that increasing i'm also pivoting towards um smaller games um as a result because trying to do a 40k army or an aos army is a big undertaking whereas a necromunda gang is less of an undertaking so i'm much more wanting that sort of thing now i think um because it will allow me to go right i'm doing this for now and before i get bored i have completed it but it all adds up mm. it's, it's ultimately it's, it's our spare time <laughs> i read like People's jobs these days are so all-encompassing and like lockdown has had very negative effects for a lot of people where if you weren't furloughed or like something didn't happen to your, you know, something bad didn't happen to your job, which could have happened, which is stressful in its own way. Um, the other thing is, is working from home means that it's very hard to switch off from your your day-to-day work. But the fact is, is that, you know, we sleep, a lot of time of the day we work a lot of the other time of the day and you need things that are not work to sit and get on with or just sit and enjoy yourself doing like detaching yourself from the need to do something is a really great way of just smelling the fresh air doing something doing something just for you and i think there's a lot of you know maybe even doing this people say oh why would you want to start a podcast about something because it makes it more work and yeah, it does. But luckily, you've got to enjoy doing those things and make sure it's not work for people to uh, engage with. So like big hobby projects. Yeah, I see a lot of people with their YouTube thing about their long built, like nine part build of a terrain thing. And I just think as long as you're having fun doing that, as, as long as it's not work for you to do that, because it is fun to edit create, and create things. It is fun to play with audio. It is fun to build terrain. It is fun to make a castle. So, yeah, I think that's that's my takeaway from it. I've, I've been very zen today, I feel, or at least very preachy. Okay, well, I think that about wraps us up for this episode of the Tiny Plastic People podcast. Let us do the where can we find people. So... Actually, first of all, I want to do a quick shout out to the Crate and Crowbar minis podcast. So it used to be a monthly minis podcast, but then they took a year off. But then that sprung up with a load of inspiration for maybe a certain tiny plastic people podcast occurred in that time. Maybe who led who? We do not know. But anyway, they're back with minis podcast. I highly recommend 
going and listening to that because I believe it all inspired us to uh, record podcasts and paint minis and do other things as well. You can find the Miniatures Monthly podcast at CrateonCrowbar.com and you'll be there amongst their regular video game podcasts, which are also very good, although not about miniatures. And the other easy way to find their podcast would be to look on your podcast provider app of choice and search for miniatures monthly so tom where can people find you on the internet uh, you can find me on instagram as respectable geek excellent drew where are you on the internet i'm on twitter but you probably won't find me and i can't remember what i am on twitter i don't go there very much on instagram however i am drew underscore paints excellent and there's lots of great kit bashes on there lately and some sculpting and your goblins are fantastic so yes thank you go check those out on instagram you can find me uh i am at alone music uk on instagram uh you can find me there with uh i post minis i also post pictures of burgers occasionally as well because i don't really believe in the whole having an instagram just for minis i just put everything on my instagram so apart from cats, which I did make a separate Instagram for. Anyway, you can find us, Tiny Plastic People, on very many of the social media sites. You can find us on Twitter at Tiny Plastic Pals. You can find us on Instagram at Tiny Plastic Pals. And you can find us on the internet at www.tinyplasticpeople.com. You can also email us, which is thetinyplasticpeople at gmail.com. So if you have anything you want to say, if you want to ask us a question, you can use any of those three methods to get in touch with us. And maybe we will answer a question, maybe we'll read it out, or maybe we'll just read it. You never know. Depends what you say, to be honest. So along with that, let's uh, wrap this podcast up and say goodbye. So goodbye, Tom. Goodbye, everyone. Goodbye, Drew. Cheerio. And goodbye from me. (laughs) 